Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 153-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali, oral historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. And Julie Golia, director of public history at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. It's December, a month associated with many different holidays, rampant commercialism, and food. Food holds many meanings. Preparing, consuming or not consuming, and sharing food shapes our complicated identities in this strikingly diverse borough. And it has for hundreds of years. So grab your favorite meal, dish, or snack, and let's explore the rich history of food and eating in Brooklyn. It's also not just immigrants becoming more American, the sort of like Anglo middle of the world idea, the ideal. It's also immigrants effect, affecting each other and influencing each other's foods and habits and ingredients. But it's also that America changes because of the people that came here. We have evidence, we just talked about evidence of Dutch culture, evidence of Brooklyn culture, of Native American influences, of influences of sort of the nationalism of the country. But of course, these were recipes that were made, and there are things that weren't recorded here. And I'm thinking about those probably African-American mm-hmm. women um, who were the enslaved people who were making these recipes yeah. for centuries before the, these women ever put pen to paper. So, um, so uh, beyond speaking Creole, are there other traditions that you guys have at home um, that you grew up with that you would say are still very Haitian and that you know you don't necessarily do in other places but that you carry on at home. I would come home and my dad would be playing records or on the weekends we would it's like we're all in the kitchen cooking and there's music and we're all you know my sisters and I are all wearing aprons and we're all helping and stuff and you know that kind of thing so mm-hmm. it's always around it A lot of the traditions, I feel like, kind of revolve around food. (laughs) Today, we're excited to have Sarah Lohman join us on the podcast. Sarah is a historical gastronomist and the author of the blog Four Pounds Flour. And on December 6th, she has a new book coming out called Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Sarah, welcome to Flatbush in Maine. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, you are known as a historical gastronomist. Correct. What is a historical gastronomist? Well, when I first launched my blog, Four Pounds Flour, uh, about eight years ago now, I, I wanted, I was trying to land on a term that I felt best described what I did because I, was, I wasn't a trained chef, uh, even though I deal with food, and I had actually gone to art school, uh, not a, a history program. 
So I was approaching it really from the angle of a public historian. I have years of experience in public history, specifically living history, which if you think like Colonial Williamsburg, Plymouth Plantation, people in costumes, which gave me this really unique perspective in terms of wanting to do things to understand them more deeply. And then that blended really well with uh, my art school background and a lifelong love of cooking, too. I feel like um, when I was first starting in food history, there were a lot of chefs who were looking to the past for inspiration, but these chefs weren't historians. And there were a lot of historians who were looking into culinary history, but the majority of them were not cooks. And so there was this sort of disassociation between the two, that they were interested in the same things, but they weren't connecting. And this big hole right in the middle where that research and that action comes together. And so I saw that hole between these two groups, and I wanted to come and link those two groups. So it's connecting um, the academic with the sort of hands-on, a hands-on history that's really accessible to everybody. As a public historian, I feel like you just want to like take information and just communicate it to the broadest audience possible. One of the things that struck me about your idea of the ways recreating foods or recipes of the past is a kind of connecting to the past. How does that, how does uh, your work of recreating old recipes allow us to access the past? I compare it to music in that you can look at a musical composition, written music, from a couple hundred years ago, you know, maybe something by Mozart, and you can sit down and you can play that. And you can have an experience that it's at least as similar. You know, maybe the instrument has changed, or maybe the room it would have been played in is different. You know, we can get really, really nitpicky. But overall, you can play that music and think, oh, you know, this is what people were listening to 200 years ago. To me, a recipe works the same way, that you can access a recipe, you can remake it. Okay, maybe the flour isn't exactly the same, or maybe their cinnamon tasted a little bit different. But to within, I don't know, 90%, it's hard to judge exactly how much authenticity you can achieve. But to me, it's about acknowledging those differences, but using these recipes to access another sensation from the past. We can hear the music, but we can taste the food. And that, I feel, brings me so much closer to people that I won't get a chance to sit down and talk to. Someone, an American who lived around the time of the Revolutionary War, for example. Well, and it would seem also that you could get closer to them by envisioning what their labor would be and what the labor of food making is. So is that part of your process too, is thinking about how they would have, like no like no stand mixers allowed? Right, anything? right. <laughs> so sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes when I see a recipe, I'm very specifically interested in a flavor combination. I found a lot of wild flavors that seem super modern, but are maybe coming from a 400-year-old manuscript. So sometimes my focus is, is on a flavor combination. Sometimes it's on an ingredient too, but sometimes it is on the labor, or sometimes I don't expect it to be about the labor. I think that a lot of our sort of modern food rhetoric about convenience food is bad and doing the best for your child and things like this, it is very modern because when you actually start recreating recipes from the past, you begin to realize how labor-intensive these foods are. And I've done projects where I've created whole days or whole weeks of eating from another time period, another way of life. And sometimes I felt like as soon as I'm done cooking one meal, I'm on to cooking the next. And that is exhausting. And it made me totally understand why women began to pick convenience food. Things that we don't even consider like sliced bread and washed carrots, but even microwave dinners too. Moving towards that to move away from this grueling daily labor that they experienced. You know, as 
a historian who's also a curator, it's interesting to think about learning as a multisensory mm-hmm. experience. You know, we've been playing a lot with ideas about smell and sound. It makes me think about oral history yeah. and the idea of reading a transcript um, versus um, actually hearing someone's voice and the inflection in their voice. How can we do this in a way that it's consumable Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a broader audience, right? Like for a really broad audience. I think that's what something like like living history strives to do. I wrote an article not too long ago for Lapham's Quarterly called Living My Best 1848 Life. And that's the year that I lived in as a teenager at my summer job. And one of the points that I make is because I was in that world five days a week, 40 hours a week, um, Part of it hasn't left me in this very bizarre way. I have these moments where maybe I'll be walking through Brooklyn and there are still townhouses here that have fireplaces and you walk these streets and you like catch that smell of that wood smoke for a second and suddenly it's like the modern world gets a little blurry and you have that moment through that smell where you can envision a Brooklyn of the past and maybe what what it was like. I think that that is the goal of these immersive museum experiences, not just at, at uh, a living history museum like Plymouth Plantation, but even where I work part-time currently at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. There, on most of the tours, you're not encountering someone in costume, but you're walking in this space and you're being told this detailed story that that shows you how they know what they know and what they don't know about a real-life person in the past. For me, it's just like a feather, just like a hair away from being a first-person experience because you're asked to empathize with these people within the environments that they lived. So let's let's look, kind of bring this closer to home, to Brooklyn. Tell us a little bit about what is Brooklyn's cultural food history like? We have this sort of agricultural past that then evolved into this post-industrial immigrant-heavy cuisine. Um, and so those trends would come out of places like Brooklyn and New York first. It's It makes me think of this sort of like culturally laden term that we often use, which I bet you encounter often at the Tenement Museum, mm-hmm. the melting pot, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, which is, of course, a food-inspired right. Right? Right. Like, um, metaphor. But it does really make me think about, you know, how much people bring cultures of cooking and cuisine and then how much they're altered by the new environment in which they find themselves and particularly by the many different kinds of people of different religions and races and ethnicities Mm -hmm. that are around them so is there a way that we can start to think of what is like a most like a brooklyn cuisine or an a a, a, you know ethnic american cuisine is the story of food in brooklyn one about mixing i would almost argue that what I'm putting forward in my book is a story of American cuisine. And it American food we think of as being through this Anglo lens, especially since we just passed Thanksgiving, you know, this idea of like what American food is. And I've realized I've just gone very exhausted with that idea because how can that possibly be so? Our f- the first people that got here were, well, it's not even true. I was going to say we're from England, Plymouth Rock, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time those people were arriving, there were Spanish missions being formed in what will become the American Southwest. And there are German immigrants coming on the second boat into Plymouth Plantation. That's when some of my ancestors got here. So we, you know, we say English, 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 you know, it's all Anglo cuisine. But in our first moments, our first immigrants were coming from three culturally distinct parts of the world. So I find myself very frustrated recently by the narrow definition of what an American is. Um, 
Take a dish like chop suey, for example. Not only is it not considered an American dish, um, but often people say this isn't authentic Chinese food. Well, the more you look into the history, the first times it's mentioned is by a Chinese man in reference to what's being prepared in Chinese neighborhoods in Brooklyn. So when I see that, I start looking a little further. Okay, I'm an immigrant. I'm coming from a culture where women do the cooking, but now I'm here and I'm by myself and I'm here with other men. So I have memories of what food is supposed to taste like and what I want to make from back home, but I don't necessarily have the practical knowledge to recreate that. So I take what I've got, both in terms of ingredients and cookware and community, and I make this thing that then gets the name chop suey, which looking at the sort of uh, the language seems to mean that it was a stir fry made of entrails originally and bits and pieces of whatever. To me, that is American food because we've got this immigrant population in this new place accessing what they can to create something that, yeah, isn't authentic to China. It's unlike but similar to things in China and is new in this country, too. It's both created by Chinese men living here, but it's also unlike anything else in the world. So America has these beautiful moments of creation that are somehow we, we turn our noses up at. Oh, it's not authentic. That's not American. We say it's both not American food and not authentic Chinese food. And I said, well, what is it then? I actually start getting uncomfortable with the idea of a melting pot because to me that calls up Ford and, you know, a, a total assimilation and that we all kind of mush together and become the same. People suggested salads or stews. <laughs> you know, maybe a stew works right. the best because we still have your carrots and your peas, but everyone's jamming in the sauce together. Because it's also not just immigrants becoming more American, this sort of like Anglo middle of the world idea, the ideal. It's also immigrants effect affecting each other and influencing each other's foods and habits and ingredients. But it's also that America changes because of the people that came here. I'm struck by when you're describing your processes, your historiographical process is one that's based on empathy, mm -hmm, right? Absolutely. It's on envisioning a person's experience. Mm -hmm. It's on embodying that person. I, I think that maybe a lack of empathy uh, is a big problem right now. Even just reading through some comments on a book review that was on The Atlantic today, one person said, uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving. Why are we bothering to talk about soy sauce and chili powder, two flavors from this book, uh, when these flavors won't see the light of day on, on this Thanksgiving? And my reaction to that is maybe not on your Thanksgiving table, mm -hmm. but the beauty of Thanksgiving to me is that pretty much everyone puts the turkey in the middle of the table, but all of the dishes around it are extremely regional. They're either regional or they're based on your family's heritage. Not to mention that classic Campbell's chicken, no, not Campbell's chicken, Campbell's, um, Campbell's green bean casserole, you know, yep. Uh, it's <laughs> disgusting and delicious. It's my favorite. <laughs> But it has five ingredients, and one of them is soy sauce, mm. which I pointed mm. out. So we also have this idea of what is not American, but, um, you know, there it is in our kind of one of our most American cuisines. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that makes it such a, important work, though, is because food is so accessible mm -hmm. uh, as, as a, you know, as a historical artifact or as a story. Like, people consume and eat foods that they don't even know that leads you to this kind of story, right? This might be a way for people to reflect on their participation in a multi, um, in, a, in a diverse kind of heritage, a diverse kind of legacy. Absolutely. What do you think Brooklyn's contribution has been to American cuisine? Hmm, interesting question. 
Well, Brooklyn, I don't have to tell you, is a Dutch word. So I think while Brooklyn's contributions have been many, let's go all the way back and talk about the Dutch and New Amsterdam. Because the Dutch had a pretty profound influence on American food, particularly when it came to sweets. Uh, the Dutch love bread. <laughs> they love a carb. So crullers, donuts, waffles, pancakes, and I think more than anything else, cookies come from New Amsterdam Dutch culture. Cookie is a totally American word. The English word for the same thing is biscuit. We rarely use that word here. Even historically, it wasn't used so much. It comes from uh, the Dutch, kokja, and it was sort of like you know, there were a lot of different people from a lot of different countries, a lot of different languages in New Amsterdam and Brooklyn. And the word kind of mutated into cookie. And we have a first published reference in 1796. And it's actually referring to Christmas cookies, too. So I think that the cultural institution of the cookie, which I see is very, very American, might be the sort of New York area and Brooklyn's Dutch finest contribution to American cuisine. For this segment of Into the Archives, we are going to take a close look at an artifact known as Mrs. Leffertz's book. Now, this artifact is a bound uh, paper notebook. Uh, when you open it up, there's on the first page what looks like a table of contents and script writing. It is, um, it looks like the kind of writing that you would find on documents from mm -hmm. over, I would say, a century or two ago. And it got its title from the fact that on the front cover it says Mrs. It, Leffert's it, book. It, it says Mrs. Leffert's book. In and two handwritings, actually. In, in two handwritings. So, Julie, tell us a little bit about this book and its significance. Yeah, this is actually, well, I feel like I always say this on the podcast, but so I'm going to just embrace it and say it again. It's one of my favorite things <laughs> in the archives. But I have spent a lot of time with it, so it's a, it does feel like a dear friend from the archive. Mm -hmm. It's a recipe book, basically. So that table of contents here that you were talking about includes everything from a wedding cake to um, oyster pie to um, Oli, Oli cooks and crullers. Um, and we'll get to those in a second, mm -hmm. um, what exactly those are. Um, and it's written by exactly who the title is, right? It's written by Mrs. Lefferts. Now, who who is Mrs. Lefferts? Why is, why is that name? So people who live in New York City, um, who live in Brooklyn and Queens especially, we know about Lefferts Boulevard, right. right? But why is that name important, Lefferts? Well, like a lot of places in Brooklyn, um, Lefferts Boulevard or Prospect Lefferts Gardens was named after a Dutch family. In this case, the Dutch family is the Lefferts family. And they're one of the earliest families to settle here in Brooklyn before, um, back when this was part of New Netherland. Um, so Brooklyn was populated in the early and mid-17th century by not all but primarily Dutch families who settled here when it was like a frontier essentially established farms and the Leffertses got here early enough that by the 18th century they had amassed an enormous amount of land so they were really like the scions of of Brooklyn they were huge landowners huge slave owners um, and can be counted among the first families of Brooklyn so there are a lot of Mrs. Leffertses. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was actually created by two Mrs. Leffertses, okay. a mother and a daughter. And the mother's name was Mariah Lott Lefferts, and her daughter um, is Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt. Um, you can see them represented in the book by their two different handwritings. I think we both agree that mom, Mariah, had better handwriting. She certainly did. 
Um, you know, so what's interesting is how how would a cookbook like this or a recipe book, how would that inform the work that historians do in constructing or reconstructing the past? You got sucks. The reason I think that question is so interesting is because this book calls into sharp relief that ideas and experiences can exist without being textual. And that, so I just told you that this family arrived in the 1660s. Mm-hmm. We've dated this book to the mid 1800s for a bunch of reasons. The family had already been in the United, in the United States for, in, well, in Brooklyn for two centuries. Right. Why did they write it down now? Right, right. Right. And so one thing that is sort of embedded in this document is the fact that these recipes had existed and had been made mm. and handed down likely orally over two centuries. Right. 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 So it brings up this question of sort of why create this right now? Right. And I mean, this relates back to some of the enormous changes taking place in Brooklyn in the early and mid 19th century. Right. Yes, this is happening right after the end of slavery, uh, which was abolished in 1827. And so I would suspect that uh, prior to that, slaves were doing most of the food production work for the Leffitt's family. Yeah, that, that's right. And um, as, as our listeners are, would know or may know, um, slavery was a permanent status. Um, slaves were owned from birth until death. And so once an enslaved person was assigned the job of cooking, there was no turnaround necessarily of having to keep teaching every year or to the new staff or whomever, because that's your permanent staff. That's right. And um, that makes it less necessary to have like written instructions, yeah. right? So that's something that I, I can see your point. You know what that. else is interesting? There's also no presumption of literacy in the 17th and 18th century. And I'm not even referring mm, just for enslaved yeah, people, yeah. but also to Dutch settlers. Many Dutch settlers who came here were illiterate. We can see this by the many um, financial documents in our archives that bear someone's mark rather than their signature, mm. indicating to us that they were illiterate. So this also shows a sort of a rising tide of literacy in this community. Yeah, and and certainly um, both in terms of the language and in terms of of measuring and math. I mean, because there are quantities here. And and, and as anyone who's ever cooked or tried to cook, if you, there's a difference between a tablespoon and a teaspoon. I learned that when I put the wrong amount of baking soda in my pancakes. Uh, and a lot of this is baking, <laughs> yeah, right? Now, yeah. See, I'm uh, Italian. I don't, and I do a lot of cooking, less baking. I, I don't use any measuring. I just throw. I feel like a little <laughs> bit of this. I feel like a little bit of that. Yeah. But these recipes, yeah. if you were off, you're absolutely right. They would right. have been a mess. That's have been right. A mess, right. So let's let's talk about some of these um, recipes that um, some of which you highlighted in looking at the table of the contents. And one of the things that that strikes me is that this is a you know, this is a, quite a repertoire, right, that this um, this book represents, so which lends itself to this sense of this is accumulated recipes over a period of time. Um, most of us are like, you know, who are not expert cooks are like three trick ponies. Like, you know, we have like four or five dishes. For and sure. this is this is quite a, a listing here 
of of recipes. It looks like there's almost a hundred things wow. in this table of contents. Yeah, and it, it does. It shows that. Well, I think this also this reinforces what you first suspected, which is that likely these were being made by servants. Yeah, and um, of, of course, first enslaved servants, and then probably after the 1820s, more and more likelihood of Irish servants. Mm, mm-hmm. That bringing in like sort of a level of transience, um, which would have required them to be written down. Right. So an Irish servant right. isn't necessarily going to stay with you their right. entire life, right? I don't recognize all of these terms in the table of contents, but some of the terms or dishes or are goods that I recognize. You've they never look, had Oli cooks? I have never had Oli cooks. <laughs> <laughs> but there are quite a few cakes. I mean, these folks were, um, yeah. they had quite a, 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 a choice here, right? Like, this, they were kind of living well in terms of what they could eat. But what is what is an Oli cook? So Oli cooks, crullers, mm-hmm. a lot of things on here are baked goods. And actually, specifically, as Sarah Lohman was telling us um, earlier, um, these are a lot of baked goods that are brought over from the Netherlands. Mm. So mm-hmm. Oli cooks and crullers are very classical parts of the Dutch diet, of sort of Dutch sweets that you would have eaten at the time. But in addition to things like Oli cooks and crullers, there's also things like oyster pie. There's Indian pie. There's an Ohio cake. Um, mm. Some of these names are actually, right. along with ingredients, particular ingredients that are used, are the way that we actually dated the book. Right. Oh, um, how so? So something like pearl ash, for example, that might not be something that our bakers today are familiar with, but this was essentially a leavening agent that was used before the widespread use of baking soda um, comes into play around the 1840s and 50s. So because there's a lot of pearl ash in here, we know that the book, if not at least the recipes, are older than Mm. that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ohio cake. This is a really interesting question, actually, that I've talked to Sarah Lohman about right, a little right. bit. Um, does Is this um, an, an honor of statehood? Mm. Um, is this a reference to the state, or is it actually a reference to the Native American tribe? Right. right? right. But at, at any rate, the word Ohio is in the vernacular enough that it has inspired a cake. Right. right? But then things like oyster... Um, pie. Um, uh, these are things that are a nod to the like locavore tendencies. Yes, yeah, that's very Brooklyn. It's as very we learned Brooklyn. from our previous podcast exactly. episode about the oyster men, right? Absolutely. In a time in the seventeenth and eighteenth century, um, particular parts of the shoreline of Brooklyn would have been teeming with oyster beds. Ironically, by the time this is written, less so. Um, oysters were already being overfished by the nineteenth century, but it's a nod to that earlier abundance, right? So it, in some ways, I guess it really embodies this kind of um, this intermingling of cultures that we had talked about in the first segment, right? What are some of the other important features of this document you think for um, a historian to make note of? We have evidence. We just talked about evidence of Dutch culture, evidence of Brooklyn culture, of Native American influences, of influences of sort of the nationalism of the country. But of course these were recipes that were made and there are things that weren't recorded here and I'm thinking about those probably African American Mm -hmm. women um, who were the enslaved people who were making these recipes for centuries before these women ever put pen to paper. In what ways did they shape the recipes and the way the food tasted? Based on what we know of this book um, are there any signs of i mean we we see there's i know one of the uh, maybe the indian pie recipe calls for indian meal yeah. which 
sounds like it probably refers yeah. to a form of cornmeal, right? Because yeah. that's that's how that's what was introduced to the settlers by the Indians. Um, I wonder if we found anything in the in this recipe book that suggests other kinds of influences. I have found very little. Mm. Now, here's the cool thing. I'm not an expert in this. Um, and this entire cookbook is available to search and look through online. And we'll include that link in our show notes. So if people are experts in food history have great knowledge of the kinds of culinary practices that mm-hmm. were brought from places like West Africa to influence uh, food in the New World. Oh gosh, please! Yeah, that would take be a look. really fascinating. To Email hear. us, yeah. tweet us, hashtag at Flatbush in Maine, and we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on this. But you know, we use here. We're always coming back to the silences in the archives, yeah. and I think that we have to maybe chalk this up to that. Um, that the taste of food or the practices um, that might have um, sort of seeped their way into the creation of this Dutch, Brooklyn, African hybrid food, we may never have the written evidence of that. So Julie, do you keep your recipes in the recipe book? I do have a little blue recipe book. You do? Mm -hmm. Is, does it contain recipes that's been handed down as well? It does. It does. I actually also have, I don't say, I don't have a recipe book. I have a file folder. I love (laughs) it. I don't have that many recipes. Back to our vertical files. (laughs) I have a vertical file. (laughs) Um, And they contain some recipes that my mom taught me. And so... Um, I think we're interested in hearing from our listeners. What kind do do you have recipes that have been handed down over generations? Do you have favorite recipes? What are the different cultural influences that have shaped the way you've prepared that and the way it's changed over time? Let us know. Shoot us an email or even better, share it on social media by using the hashtag Flatbush and Maine. In Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to hear the voice of Erica Basile, whose oral history was collected for a recent oral history project we conducted here at Brooklyn Historical Society called Crossing Borders, Bridging Generations, which looked at mixed heritage and cultural hybridity in Brooklyn. Erica Basile was born and raised in Johnson City, Tennessee. She studied painting at East Tennessee State University and received an MA in visual culture. She identifies her heritage as African, French, and Taino ancestry and identifies as mixed race and West Indian. She grew up speaking Creole and English with family members and studying French throughout her education. Her parents were both immigrants from Haiti and they met and married in New York City. She lives in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, and works as a writer, artist, and independent fashion scholar. In this particular clip that we're going to listen to, uh, she talks about um, the importance of food in her identity. So, um, so uh, beyond speaking Creole, are there other traditions that you guys have at home um, that you grew up with that you would say feel very Haitian and that you know you don't necessarily do in other places, but that you carry on at home? Mm-hmm. The thing, the first thing that comes to mind is just in general, like music, playing music and oh. eating and dancing and hanging out. Like just, my household was very alive. It was very, um, it wasn't like quiet and boring. It was, I would come home and my dad would be playing records or on the weekends we would, it's like we're all in the kitchen cooking and there's music and we're all, you know, my sisters and I are all wearing aprons and we're all helping and stuff. and. 
you know, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's always around, it, a lot of the traditions I feel like kind of revolve around food. <laughs> Are there um, special foods that you grew up um, enjoying or cooking? learning to cook for your mom that are Haitian? Yeah, there's um, one in particular that we eat um, on New Year's Day. It's called soup jumu. It's a pumpkin soup. Mm -hmm. You can make it with like pumpkin or butternut squash, and it's to celebrate Haitian independence. And even if I'm not with my parents, I make it. My sister and I like make oh. it here. This clip really makes me think about the collective experience of cooking mm -hmm. I think so far in this episode maybe not both of us but I've been kind of thinking about a person an individual sort of cooking the idea of cooking as a labor but we haven't really thought about cooking as a joy yeah, <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> which is funny because yeah. it's so joyful yeah. right um, but that that the the way that the experience of cooking you could clearly hear Erica s describing the way that this just strengthened the ties between her and her family and then their own sort of collective identity together. Yeah, and I think that this is something that, that you know, conjures up a memory, too, because, you know, she says, even when I'm not with my parents, I make it, my sister and I, you know, make it. And so I think, you know, we looked at in segment two, when we looked into the archives at the Mrs. Lefford's book, I think we, we looked at how a document or an archive can transmit history or carry memories. And um, here's another way of how, you know, food and food work and food production carries memories so that even though her parents are not with her or her parents are not with them, the act of um, carrying out or the act of preparing this dish conjures up their presence or their memory, right? That um, it is almost a way of summoning the past. Um, and this reminds me of what Sarah was saying of why she got into, um, you know, this kind of time travel that food allows. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is um, a kind of experiential mm -hmm. history that happens by preparing food, especially when it's connected to a memory of, like she talks about dance. I mean, we can almost picture um, mm -hmm. this family, you know, dancing in the kitchen while they prepare this meal. And it could be your own family, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. There, you know, it's also, maybe, it's also really makes me think about how food is also uh, is political yeah. in this clip, right? Yeah. And so she and her sister are getting together to, to, to make this soup to honor Haitian independence. And so... Um, related to, you know, your observations about memory, the idea of keeping a kind of political will or a political spirit alive through multiple senses. Um, I can't think of a better um, political tool yeah. than to engage food in the process of food making in keeping alive a set of political, radical political ideals, you know? Yeah, you know, I I was really interested by this idea when when I listened to this clip for the first time. So I kind of did a little bit of research, um, you know, trying to understand how this particular dish became linked to Haitian independence. And um, from what I was able to discern, um, this particular um, pumpkin soup or, or soup jumu um, was something that enslaved uh, uh, people were not allowed to eat. And so, you know, the and I don't know if the story is apocryphal, right. but the story is on 
uh, January 1st, 1804, which was the, 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 the victory of Haitian independence against the French, um, Jacques Dessalines ordered this soup prepared and wow. served to the masses. And so whether or not that actually happened, that's the memory and that, that does talk about the great significance that this dish holds, not just um, to celebrate independence, but also, you know, w the ways that um, food served, but also food withheld, um, really talks about power and social relations um, in, in really important ways. 2016's coming to a close. But we're going to hit the ground running come 2017 with some great events taking place here at Brooklyn Historical Society. We're excited to share with you an event that is taking place on Wednesday, January 11th, 2016, hosted by us. That's right. Flatbush in Maine goes live. To mark Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, uh, we will be having a program called Civic Responsibility Then and Now, A View from the Archives. And, you know, this will be on the eve of the presidential inauguration, and we'll be thinking about what it means to be civically engaged in the year 2017. We'll draw inspiration from Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and both Julie and I will delve into our archives to consider the varied approaches to civil rights tactics over the course of our nation's history. We will be taking the structure of our podcast, which many of our listeners are familiar with. We're going to be talking about histories and ideas, and we're going to be featuring an archival document. And then for Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to be opening up the audience to hear what you, um, our listeners and the attendees at night, have to say about this very historical moment that we're in right now. I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out what is the best way to move forward in light of what you know, has happened with this election. And I think you and I have talked about it in a previous episode about the work that historians do. And I think it's important for us to have this conversation. Yeah, we definitely want to flesh this out a little um, with the input from our audience. So come on out uh, because we want to listen to what you have to say. And it'll be exciting for us to meet our listeners. So that's January 11th. Um, starts at 6.30, and you can find links to purchase tickets on the show notes. Tickets are only $5, and if you're a member, they're free. We also wanted to flag just one other event the week after. On Tuesday, January 17th at 6.30 p.m., historian Michael Woodsworth is going to be um, coming to BHS to talk about his new book, which is called Battle for bed The Long War on Poverty in New York City. So the event is at 6.30, it's $10, and I think I really wanted to flag it because it ties in so saliently with the conversation that we had a couple months ago about women, politics, and intersectionality. Yes, yes. Um, Woodsworth actually writes um, in depth about Shirley Chisholm and about Elsie Richardson, whose oral history clip we heard back in October. So I think this would be a great way for people who might have been inspired or fascinated by this episode to learn a little bit more. 
Before the year ends, I'm guessing that a lot of you might have some shopping to do. And so we also just wanted to remind you that BHS has a pretty fantastic gift shop. Um, and that if you come in and become a member, um, you will always get a 10% discount. Um, if you're the, if you're a first-time shopper here, you'll also receive a 10% discount. I personally did almost all of my Christmas shopping here last and, year. And you know, there's some really cool things here. Some really Brooklyn, very Brooklyn things. And they're very reasonably priced, but they're also pretty cool. Having talked about food for... This episode, I think, you know, Zahir and I have had food on our minds. So, Zahir, <laughs> I'm just wondering, what food has shaped your identity? Um, for me, I think my, you know, I, there's there's so much. But um, I like apple pie. I would have to say apple pie. And it, you so know, American. I, I know, it's so American. And, you know, I, I initially I was like apple pie, and then I was like, that's so boring and so American. But I, but I thought about why apple pie um, has meant a lot, I think, to my family. And so my family's from Trinidad. And I didn't really, growing up, realize it until later that apples don't grow in Trinidad. So <laughs> so having apples, I mean, and, and being able to have, make apple pie in Trinidad is is really, you know, like, it's kind of deep. It's like an apple is an, ex- thinking of an apple as an exotic fruit um, really flips, it, it, it decenters America, actually. Right. That something we think is like so American is so everyday is so plain is like, no, your fruit is weird. It's good, but it's weird and it's different. And so I think um, ever since I was little, I remember apple pie for just being a really special dish because it was so different than the other kinds of cuisine that uh, came out of the islands. I love the idea of apple pie as an exotic dessert. That's awesome. How about you? What is your favorite meal or dish? Well, I am Italian-American, as you know, and so a really special dinner is coming up for my family. Um, Not for all Italians, but for a lot of Italians, and certainly for this Italian, um, it's not always about Christmas, it's about Christmas Eve. Mm. Because on Christmas Eve, we do a seven-course fish meal. And so I guess I would say my food is the seven fishes. And I can't tell you how visceral my memories of the seven fishes are from when I was a kid. I would wait all year for some of my favorite meals, scungili salad. My favorite is zuppa di vongola, or we call it zuppa di clams. Um, <laughs> and every single aspect of the taste, um, I can just like, it's like etched in my brain. And what's funny is that we, I, I can't imagine eating those foods on any other night, but that wow. night they just wouldn't, they just wouldn't taste the same. But then as I became an adult and I began to um, be the one who was making these food, incorporating this practice into my own family, it really became clear to me that it's not so much an Italian tradition, which of course it is, but right. it's become an Italian-American tradition. And so the ways that we've cooked the fish have changed. Um, and even the way that I prepare the fish is different than, way, than the way that my grandmother and my mother prepared it. And so the seven fishes in some ways is sort of the epitome of Italian tradition, but it's also this great evidence of the evolution of what it means to be Italian-American. Oh, I'm getting so hungry. I am too. Um, so we, we wish you all a... Happy break, holiday season, however you observe or don't observe, and and hope you have some happy eating, too. And we'll see you in the new year. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, Sarah Lohman. 
You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Goliath.